This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. It is time for you to reclaim your health, happiness, and life. Feeling like you're a victim of your own circumstances? It doesn't matter what you are facing. Whether you are struggling with illness, a relationship, money blockages, unhappiness at work, trauma, or repeating patterns from childhood, let your dreams become a reality by taking charge of your life and making what you desire a reality. Dr. Karen Curitan is passionate about empowering others to do this. On this episode, she will show you how. Valeria interviews Dr. Karen Curitan. She is a licensed naturopathic physician, acupuncturist, passionate neuroplasticity practitioner, and co-creator of the Wired for Wellness program. Through her own journey with complex chronic illness, anxiety, depression, and PTSD, Along with treating hundreds of patients with complex chronic illness, Dr. Karen Curitan realized the profound impact that stress physiology has on all aspects of health. By rewiring her brain and rebalancing her nervous system, she was able to free herself from anxiety, depression, PTSD, many physical symptoms, and stress patterns. She has since helped many clients do the same with diverse health issues, trauma, and self-sabotaging patterns. Dr. Kiritan is now a firm believer that everyone with a chronic health issue will benefit from neural retraining, and in many cases, it is critical to healing. Meet Dr. Karen at getwiredforwellness.com backslash anxiety and getwiredforwellness.com. Here's the interview with Dr. Karen Curitan. In your own words, who is Dr. Karen Curitan? Hi, yes. I, you know, that's obviously a big question, but I'll I'll just start by telling a little bit of my story to explain who I am, I think, because it has a lot to do with, you know, what I'm doing in my life today. Basically, you know, my journey has been a journey of understanding health and healing. Like I, when I was 19, I got very, very sick pretty suddenly, didn't really understand what was going on. And, um, you know, ended up with anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, 
I was chronically ill for over 15 years and I had chronic pain for periods of time as well. And so I love telling my story because I think it's incredibly inspiring that I was able to recover from all of those things. You know, for many people, that's jaw dropping in terms of our medical paradigm today, which is primarily, unfortunately, still about, you know, suppressing symptoms. So, you know, when I started walking down a different road other than conventional medicine is when I finally started to find some answers to help myself heal. And so in service of that, I went to naturopathic school and acupuncture school and, you know, became uh, a doctor. And in that process, funny enough, I still didn't learn what I needed to learn to heal. And I learned it after I graduated, you know, you know, several years into practice while I was already helping other people. And, um, what I found is that a great percentage of my patients also needed the very secret that I was in search of for myself. So what I ultimately found was that I had driven my nervous system into a lot of dysregulation. Basically, I was stuck in a stress response for, you know, many, many years, probably almost the entirety of that 15 plus years that I was sick. And, um, I think like many people, I downplayed that, you know, I told myself like, everybody's life is this stressful. That can't possibly be what's making me sick. You know, I, I, I can't be less stressed than this. You know, I used to tell myself all kinds of stories like that, but in the end, that's, that was not the case. And in fact, I really needed to get my nervous system better regulated. Um, I needed to stop having stress physiology in my body because it did make me sick and keep me sick from many different things, from chronic infections and immune disorders and, you know, like just lots and lots of different kinds of health issues that, you know, it took me a long time to resolve because I ignored that piece of it, unfortunately. But when I figured it out, you know, everything started to fall into place. My healing just started to click one thing after the other. The things that I had been doing from a naturopathic standpoint to try to heal actually helped me once I got regulated um, because I wasn't fighting against my normal physiology every time I took that pill. So, you know, I, as a result of that, I ended up closing my naturopathic practice and acupuncture practice because I need, I felt like I needed to do this work full time. I needed people to know how incredibly powerful this can be. And that meditation and yoga and talk therapy and, um, those other traditional tools are not the only ones out there. Um, and I think that the tools we have now are much better. Wow. Yeah. And we will explore them. I have lots of questions for you. Wow. It's, it's amazing listening to you talk about your own experience with the pain and suffering through chronic anxiety, depression. So I guess I'll ask you an, an open question about that. How do you make sense of suffering and pain, Karen? You know, I think for me, what what has served me in terms of a belief system about suffering over time is that it has a purpose. And for me, that that really is true. My suffering absolutely has had a purpose in the sense that 
I am such a better doctor because I have been through what so many of my patients have been through. You know, if I hadn't been through that, I probably never would have explored this work that I'm doing now that I'm so passionate about and that is so incredible in terms of transforming lives and health on a level I didn't even know was possible. So at this point, I feel like my suffering was really leading me down this road of being able to help other people. But I think for other people, it's a different, there's a different meaning behind it. There's a different lesson or learning. And sometimes it's something as simple as I learned that the world wouldn't fall apart if I didn't mm-hmm. take the trash out. Yes. Right? And yes. and so sometimes it's really yeah. simple stuff like that that make our suffering mm. really have um, an upside or a silver lining, I think. And, and that can really, finding that silver lining, I think, can really help us get through. Mm. Yes. Beautifully said. Yeah. I love your answer about purpose of suffering. It's almost, to me, it, I wish we could. We didn't have to go through this, but it seems like um, in order not to have pain or suffer, or suffer, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be humans then. So, yeah. But I know that there are, I mean, we would cause a lot of our pain too, a lot of our suffering for sure. And there mm-hmm. is so much of unnecessary suffering within the human experience. I guess with that in mind, I have another question for you about the cause. Did you find out the cause of uh, your chronic, the, actually not your, the chronic anxiety that you experienced? Yeah. So for me, in terms of the anxiety, it's interesting because I was anxious as a kid too. So when I was a kid, it was very, it was in specific areas of life. It was like really confined to being the center of attention in front of other people. For the most part, that was my thing as a kid. And it would cause me to like shake and sweat and, you know, do the whole thing that, you know, involved in anxiety to the point that, you know, I was verging on panic attacks as a kid sometimes in those situations. And as I got older, that got worse, actually, like social and performance anxiety got worse. And it happened because I had some other difficult or uncomfortable or stressful experiences with it, right? So the way that our brains work is that whenever we have a an experience and it's accompanied by us having a strong negative emotional reaction, the brain will store aspects of whatever was going on in that moment as threat, right? And so then it will replay that in our lives when we're in any kind of situation that seems even remotely similar, right? So as I got older, of course, I encountered more situations where I had to be the center of attention. And um, many of those situations, I panicked. And so I reinforced to my brain that it really was dangerous for me to be the center of attention. And I just didn't realize that that's how the brain worked. And so I didn't know that I was unintentionally making it worse. Mm -hmm. And then I think that um, what caused things to really come to a head is, you know, when I got sick, um, I started to develop more worries and anxieties about my health, about my life, like what what was I going to be able to accomplish or not in my life? Like, of course, as many people experience when you have a debilitating chronic illness, you worry about being on disability and being alone and all these kinds of really intense things. And I 
didn't really put any checks and balances on my brain at that stage. You know, I just was feeling all the feels and, and following them down their thought tunnels, you know, but ultimately over that period of time, because of that, what the way I was using my brain, I just became more and more and more anxious. And we know that anything we repeat over and over again, even emotional states and behaviors, we get better at. And that means that those neural networks are more likely to fire whether we want them to or not. And so by the time I finished medical school, I was practically vibrating all the time. I was so anxious, like I could feel it in my body all the time. And um, so I think that, you know, a lot of other people out there are probably experiencing that too and probably thinking to themselves things like, oh my gosh, am I dying? Or (laughs) (laughs) will this ever go away? Will I I ever get better? Maybe I Uh need to get on a benzodiazepine, Mm -hmm. right? Or something like that. But that's absolutely not the case. You can rewire your brain back to a calm, balanced state. And I can tell you that very confidently because I did it and I've helped a lot of people do it since that time. So ultimately what that required for me was one, rewiring some memories, basically changing the way some memories were held in my brain that related to the things that triggered me the most. So that in the context of what we're talking about, that was things like, you know, when I was a kid being, you know, the uh, lead singer in a play, which was terrifying for me as a kid. I was like, not the type of kid that wanted to do that, you know, Um, or like uh, a performance exam in medical school where I like practically had a panic attack. Those kinds of events, I had needed to rewire those so that they would stop replaying themselves in my life in the present. I also really needed to rewire some belief systems. You know, I I held some belief systems about all those things that were really not helpful. Like, oh, people think that I'm stupid and they don't want to listen to me and I'm not interesting, you know? And obviously, if you think those things about yourself, then yeah, you're not going to feel very comfortable speaking in front of other people. But oftentimes those stories we tell ourselves are legitimately not true, right? And that that was definitely the case for me. And then, you know... As I rewired those things, those, as I like to call them, the roots of the stress trees, um, then, you know, a lot of those trees started falling over. I stopped having those stress responses um, that I had been having over and over and over again in the same situations for years. And um, that was so incredibly freeing, as I'm sure your listeners can imagine. Um and little by little, yeah, I, I truly realized, wow, our brains are far more plastic than we ever give them credit for, far more changeable. And when you experience it firsthand, it's so exciting because then you realize, oh my gosh, I can change all these other things that are causing me a lot of unpleasantness in my life. Mm, yes. <laughs> so. Yes. That's That was my journey. At this point, I live my days without chronic anxiety and I also speak in front of people several times a week. Um, And so, yeah, really all of my anxious patterns have transformed dramatically and I just don't deal with much of it anymore. Wow. I love to hear that, Karen. That's beautiful. It's really, Mm. really the work of healing, being open to it as well. We need to first, I think the first step is being aware and then being open to go through the process. Yeah. I love all that. And especially, I love the idea that you are using your own experience to 
teach others, to pass this on, to guide others into in a most calm, peaceful state of living. That's really, it means a lot because it seems like we need to hear other people coming from that place of knowing, I have been there, I know what it's like. And you sound very much like that. So Mm -hmm. that's wonderful. I guess a comment that I'd love to make about this is my own experience of dealing with anxiety. It came from childhood trauma. And, but I remember I never done therapy and I think I never done Yes, I went straight to spirituality. It was my path for some reason. Something mm-hmm. that something in me chose that. Yes. So, and with that, spirituality meant being true to myself, acting, behaving in a world in a more natural way, being true to me. Yes. So that kind of, every time I was, I felt that way, that I was being true to myself, to my own heart, then anxiety would vanish. That's how I learned. Ah, mm-hmm. wait a minute. So if I keep doing the things I love, you know, coming from that place of, of natural place, that authentic place, as some people call it, then that, that will just cure everything or heal everything. And of course, it didn't, not everything, but most of it just went away on its own. So talk to me for a moment about your own ideas of spirituality, I guess, we talked off record about this, and I would love to hear from you. What it, what is spirituality to you these days? Yeah, you know, I think that spirituality to me in particular is is really this connection to deep connection. I think to myself and to really everything else around me. Um, you know, I in some of my most spiritual experiences, which I've had a lot of actually, because before I went down this path of using neuroplasticity for healing, I also very deeply explored um, shamanic and energy work styles of healing. I, yeah, deeply explored some spiritual approaches to healing, um, a lot of different forms of meditation and, um, psychedelics. I have a lot of experience with psychedelics as well. And so through those experiences, I think I formed, you know, what you were talking about is that, that sort of connection with the part of myself that is my truest self. There's the part of me that is not wearing masks all day, every day, and is not trying to fit into anybody else's box um, and that to me is a really important guiding light. Whenever I'm going through something really hard, I will often come back to that and come back to what does my heart say? What feels right to me? You know, um, what feels aligned? And, um, I do talk about that with a lot of my clients, but I also just like people to know that if that is not something that, comes naturally to you or that you have experienced before that really like deep intuitive connection of yourself, that it's okay. You can still heal. Um, we have a lot of people doing this neuro neuroplasticity work who really are not spiritual and that's not their thing. And that's okay. Um, luckily all of our brains work the same to a very large extent. Uh And, you know, we know these sort of neurobiological principles now about how the brain works and therefore how to um, really make changes in it so that it produces, you know, 
states of regulation, more more feelings of um, vitality and well-being and joy and purpose and all that kind of stuff. And so um, if you are not a very spiritual person, please don't take this to mean that I think you need to be. In fact, I don't think that that was the thing that was most healing for me. I think it was an important part of my journey of learning to trust myself and to um, have boundaries around, you know, who I am and what I want and what's important to me and things like that. But, um, ultimately I think for me, I really have a lot of that programming that those, that learned conditioning from prior experiences in life that was literally just playing like a cassette tape on repeat inside me. And I needed, different tools, unfortunately, to teach my brain that that pattern wasn't working and that it was time to play a new, a new cassette tape, mm-hmm. essentially. Yes. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. you know, I tried to do that with shamanic work and energy work and psychedelic work and other spiritual approaches. And I just, I couldn't quite do it that way. But those spiritual approaches really helped me in other ways quite dramatically. So, mm, yes, thank you for sharing that as well. <laughs> I yeah. appreciate it very much. So I guess a question comes to mind is about the cassette tape, but, you know, as in belief systems and the programming. Can we experience the human everyday moments without, without a belief system? Can we just drop the, the cassette tape? Is that possible? I think we can. It's quite hard to do. Um, you know, our subconscious mind is the one that has all these cassette tapes that play. And essentially, I like to think of them as our autopilot tapes, right? So anytime we like get in the car, we have an autopilot tape for driving, right? And we just put in the tape, press play, and we drive to wherever we're going. And we don't think about, okay, I need to turn the wheel at this speed in order to make this turn just right. You know, (laughs) we don't think about those things anymore. And it's the same with our emotional responses um, and the behaviors that come from them. So I think that, um, rewiring those in the brain is really how you can stop those cassette tapes from playing without needing to constantly manage it, right? So there are, and these approaches have been taught for millennia, ways to be more mindful of your programming, right? And to go, oh, I see that program running. Um, I Now that I recognize that I'm going to consciously choose to do something different in this moment, right? That's one way of going about it. Um, But that's the harder way because it requires us to be constantly using our conscious effort to control what the subconscious wants to do. And we, we, we literally were not really designed for our brains to, for our conscious minds to be that focused at all times. Um, And so I think that that's why rewiring is so freeing for people because people are tired of constantly fighting against their own programming. They're tired of, you know, trying to willpower their way out of an emotional reaction. And so this method makes it such that they don't have to anymore. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Of course, it's extremely useful to replace, right, the cassette tape. (laughs) Yes. That would be the first step. But I love the idea that we can actually be more present, be in the moment. Although I, I really don't see time as most people do. Um, time to me doesn't really exist. It's, a, it's a, just a human concept. But mm-hmm. it's uh, just being here. There's something about 
being aware of what's happening in this spaceless here, timeless here, that is, is really, um, it's magical in a way. Mm-hmm. It, it changes everything. For me, it has been an amazing experience. But the more I do that, and that came from, of course, mindfulness and meditation. And this yes. is something that you speak of too. I remember looking, I think I read something about that you have tried that too, right, Karen? Meditation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, it didn't work. For most people, it doesn't work. Talk to me for a moment about that, actually. Um, yes. Meditation, yoga, you know that. So um, mindfulness style meditation in particular is what I was referring to there. Is It really is not the same as rewiring specific stress programming in the part of our brain where that programming lives, where it is stored. So we know that there are a lot of tremendous benefits of mindfulness meditation, and the research clearly states that. However, the re- there are several reasons why it doesn't actually change that stored stress programming. And, you know, this, I've feel very, very confident in at this point because a lot of people that come to work with me have done mindfulness for literally like many years, if not decades. My business partner who also ended up being a neuroplastician with me, she um, was a devout meditator of this style for 20 years before she discovered neuroplasticity. So, and it didn't change her stress programming either. So the reason why it can't do that is, number one, when you go about wanting to change something in the limbic system, this emotional part of the brain, whatever you want to change, it has to be active in that moment, right? So oftentimes people are not intentionally doing something at the start of their meditation to activate their things they're stressed about, but that's actually what would be required in order to make changes to that neural network. So... The second reason, I think, is because in order to make changes to an emotional neural network in the brain, you have to actually create an autonomic nervous system state change, and you need to do it quite quickly, right? So you need to activate the the neural network you want to change and then immediately send a signal of safety to the brain that is strong enough that it's all the brain hears. Basically, it stops hearing the stressful thoughts you were having right before that. It stops hearing the stressful sensations you were having before that. And in the moment, for just a brief moment, it gets a signal of safety through both mind and body. And that signal needs to be strong enough to cause an autonomic nervous system state change, basically going from fight, flight, or freeze back to rest, digest, and heal. And with that, there will be an emotional shift. So some people do, I think, get that state change, but more often I think it takes many uh, iterations, a lot of practice being a good meditator to get to the point where it does cause a consistent and strong state change. But even then, I think the state change happens usually more slowly, right? So people may drop into their meditative state over the period of five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, depends on the person. Right. Um, And so therefore, it's not going to be quite fast enough to make changes to that neural network. The third reason is that we need to repeat whatever we're trying to teach the brain. And we need to ideally get those repetitions in quite quickly if we want to make fast changes. So oftentimes, 
you know, meditation is done in one long sitting, right? You oftentimes people are sitting down for at least 15 minutes at a time. Um, And actually what makes faster changes in the brain is to send brief signals of safety, then activate the neural network again, then send a signal of safety and activate the neural network, send a signal of safety. And you can do all of that in very short succession. So that will make very quick changes in the brain, right? Because we know the brain learns everything with repetition. So if you can get those reps in faster, then you can make changes faster. So I think those are the primary things. I still love meditation as a tool and I love mindfulness as a tool. And I do teach it as part of how I help people get regulated. But the these other tools uh, really for most of my clients and patients who are on the very dysregulated side have been necessary and they have not been able to do it with meditation or yoga. Right. So this is very, it's very clear to me. Yes. I love all forms of healing, all kinds of modalities, because I know some of them won't work with certain people. Like in my case, it's more spiritual oriented. So yes. anything that's not, it's almost like I, I wouldn't be open to it. So that's already closed that door. Yeah. So that's wonderful to know. So now I guess the questions about medication, because I know a lot of people go for that. That will be the, they're actually the first experience trying to cope with anxiety. So yeah. I remember reading, I have it here actually, and the topics that you sent me says, the dangerous truth about anxiety medications, pharma does not want you to know. So I would love to hear your opinion, your perspective about medication. Yeah, so what I am specifically referring to there is benzodiazepines. It's not that the other classes of um, drugs that are using anxiety don't have downsides and risks, they definitely do, but benzodiazepines seem to have the most. And so unfortunately, I think, you know, benzodiazepines were considered a miracle drug and they were handed out like candy. And for a very long time, doctors thought there were no downsides. And so unfortunately, some people still think that and they think that they really are safe and that it's fine to just lean on it and there won't be any consequences, but that's not how it's going for most people at this point. So benzodiazepines, you know, are some of the most addictive drugs on the planet. They're incredibly hard for um, a huge percentage of people to get off of. Sometimes it takes literally years. Um, Over two years is common. Um, Between one and two is very, very common. Um, Less than that is, is very uncommon. So, you know, But on top of that, the other thing that makes me very wary of them is that we now have very good research showing that they damage the brain Um, and they make it more likely that someone will develop Alzheimer's and they actually like shrink or atrophy certain parts of the brain. So um, that is obviously very concerning. And I think from a clinical perspective, what I've seen is that people who have been on benzodiazepines you can tell because they're they it's harder for them to access states of regulation without the drug basically like our brains adapt to having the drug in in our system and so they stop 
producing all the same neurochemicals that they usually do because the drug is doing that and it's doing it so potently, right? It's binding those GABA receptors so potently that the brain's like, oh, I don't need to produce any GABA. You've d- we've already bound up all our GABA receptors. And so unfortunately, we end up burning out those receptors and people end up needing to take more and more of the drug to feel calm. And at a certain point, they, they usually stop working for a lot of people. Um, so I just like people to know that uh, there's an alternative. These drugs have side effects, they have downsides, but there's an alternative. And if you're if you are on the drugs, I'm not saying any of those things to scare you. I really am just trying to sub, to to spread the word as a public service announcement in case you have not taken the drugs and you're thinking about it. If you are on the drugs and you're on them chronically, you can get off of them. Yes, the process may be slow, but you can absolutely do it and it's worth it, right? Save your brain. And these these tools really help people to get off of them because as you can imagine, if you felt the need to go on Xanax in the first place, you are struggling with some significant anxiety, right? And so if you then try to go off of Xanax and you haven't done anything to address that anxious patterning in the brain, it's going to start playing again as soon as the drug drops below a certain level, right? And so then you're going to be feeling the need for the drug again. So if you don't want to be caught in that loop, then you need another tool set to help you out of the anxiety and panic that is the reason you got on the drug. Yes, you're very clear with, with this information. Yes, it's very, I mean, I'm, I'm here kind of in awe. I actually don't know much about medications. Um, mm. Wow. So I have an idea, but not in depth as you do. And that's incredible. So it's wonderful to have this awareness, not just for myself, but for everybody listening. Yeah, And I remember interviewing somebody recently. He was diagnosed with bipolar mm-hmm. disorder a long time ago. He is older now. I think he's 70-something. And he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was a teenager. And he has mm-hmm. been taking so many strong drugs, medications since then. Yeah. And he had so many health complications. Oh. I think a kidney transplant. Heart oh. disease, all kinds. I mean, it's just sad to hear him. I was just yes. asking him here on the podcast, you know, are you open to try something else? <laughs> and right. he said, I'm old now. I can't really. He's he's not really. He said he was. He, he can't really try anything else because mm-hmm. he's almost afraid to try, you know, to get off the drug and something could happen. So it was really yes. sad listening to him. Um, that is very sad. Um, I guess... The question for you when it comes to panic attacks, I have a question. I think I had a few myself. What's helpful to do, Karen? Oh, because I do believe in medications when it comes to emergencies. I think that's a good yes. idea, right? To have them. Yes. But would you actually recommend something else, like something, an approach that's natural when we are having panic attacks right in that moment? Yes, 100%. And, you know, Uh, most of the time, panic attacks are not being caused by something physiological, right? Occasionally people are like, oh, I have panic attacks because I have Lyme disease. And I'm like, okay, yes, that could happen. But most of the time, panic attacks are being caused by this anxious programming in the limbic system. And so when somebody, so basically a panic attack is your brain saying, I feel threatened by this to the nth degree. So much so that I'm going to create this panic attack so that you don't 
go near whatever that is that I feel threatened by. Right. So if it's, if it was my little self with public speaking, right. Like my brain would produce a panic attack so that I would not try out for the school play or I would not get on that stage and (laughs) play my violin. Right. Um, It was trying to protect me from something Mm -hmm. that it thought was a real threat, but our brains often make mistakes in determining what is a real threat in our modern lives because we didn't evolve with this kind of threat, so to speak, that we have today of like, you know, somebody posting something mean about us on social mm-hmm. media. That was not a thing for our <laughs> <Yes>. ancestors, <laughs> right? Yes. So, yeah. um, so we need to acknowledge that, I think, and, and really have some compassion for ourselves and say, hey, our brains just need some clarification here. And so public speaking is not a life or death threat. So we can teach the limbic system to not produce panic attacks with that. And we Actually, with the method that I use, often I'm able to get people to stop having panic attacks in under a week. Under a month is almost a guarantee um, because it's <sighs> panic attacks are like the icing on your cupcake, your anxiety cupcake. And so it's pretty easy to take that icing off. Um, breaking down or eating the rest of the cupcake takes a little bit more time. <laughs> yes. That's a good example. <laughs> but we, yeah. but um, with the panic attacks, mm-hmm. I, like I, I'll tell you about this one woman um, yeah. who used to have panic attacks every time she went to Costco. And um, she didn't know why. She didn't actually have a trauma or anything at Costco. But it just was – I think it had to do with COVID because it started in 2020. And so – I was like, okay, well, you know, we were just doing this in our little free discovery call. I was like, let's just see what we can do with this, okay? And I just led her through a little process where I had her imagine she was going to Costco. She started to get super anxious. Like, she got up to like an 8 out of 10 just from imagining she was walking into Costco. And so we knew we activated the neural network. And then I started having her do things to send strong signals of safety to the brain. And we went, did a little back and forth with that for a few minutes And literally in under five minutes, she could imagine going to Costco and doing the whole thing and feeling totally calm. So then I gave her a couple things to do at Costco later that day. I was like, okay, I want you to go to Costco, do these things to reinforce to your brain that Costco really is safe. And then I want you to go into Costco. And she went in. She had no problems. She has not had a panic attack in Costco since. And she goes every week. So... It can be that fast. And so I think that's really inspiring if you're dealing with panic attacks. Like, if you know it can be that fast, why would you reach for a medication, at least chronically, right? Acutely, sure. But chronically, you've got way better options here, and they're fast. Yes, uh, this is very, I mean, it, it's, I don't like to use the word hope. It's just science, isn't it, Karen? Knowledge, yeah. it's getting to know more of our own selves. So that's what basically what I call spirituality, is yes. going deeper into your your own system, I mean, your inner world. I know a lot of times we don't have the tools. We don't, we can't really access. We don't have language, right, to, to explain yes. what's happening and what to do. But I have found it. I mean, my from my my own experience, it has been extremely helpful to just. It's almost like overriding a lot of the belief systems of what is to be a human and what am what we are doing here as mm-hmm. as humans. So yes. that kind of every time that the body is trying to react or respond to something in a negative way, then 
that comes in, you know, this knowledge that I have, which it's basically sounds very, it will sound very simple, perhaps to you. And you probably have already this knowledge that everything is connected. There's the foundation for life is one reality. We all have our own bodies and minds. They very much look separate and different. But mm-hmm. there is one reality here that connects everything mm-hmm. that was never disconnected. So I guess that once it has been established in the form of meditation and contemplation, which I do every day. So that gets me out of trouble. <laughs> yes. Because then comes in immediately, you know, the, it kind of overrides the, the programming. And, uh, and then the heart opens and I become calm again. <laughs> it yes. works for me, but I know it doesn't work for everyone. So I just want to share that. Yeah. And I think it's very interesting what you will find as people get better regulated and they get better at these tools and and really understanding themselves and their stress responses. Oftentimes, the process of backing up from a stress response and helping it release or subside gets faster and faster and faster, right? So this 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 process really is a learning process. Um, not only learning how your brain can respond differently in that moment, but also your brain is learning how to learn better really on, a, on an emotional level, which I think is really cool um, because a lot of people don't want to have to do a lot every day, all day to manage how they feel, right? And they want something that's going to produce a result that builds, that's cumulative, and that eventually requires less effort. Right. And I think that that's what happens when you go on a deep journey of understanding yourself and your motivations and your trauma and your stress responses. And eventually it becomes really natural and really easy to keep yourself regulated. Mm, yes. Yes. That you, this is called rewire. There's a name for it, right? I know it's, it comes from their plasticity, but there is a, I know you use a different name for it. Yeah. You know, uh, people call this neural retraining, brain training, brain retraining, neuroplasticity. All of those are really interchangeable. So sorry, everyone, for so many different terms for the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't make them all up, but I do use them all. Yeah. So it's the same. We are talking about the same subject. And I have interviewed all the people and I'm familiar with the topic. But I guess what caught my attention is that I think I read this on on your website where you said that there's something that you do that's different. It's not what makes me different. I think that was the question, I believe. Yeah. So do you do, is that your experience by sharing your experience? I would love to know what what do you add to this already kind of fascinating and highly accurate and, and effective approach? Yeah, you know, I think that when people like go out there to research brain training or neural retraining, what they will find is what they will find first is a couple of big um, group programs that have been teaching neural retraining principles for probably a decade now. But um, those are using a very simplistic method. And that method basically is what I call the repetitive practice model, where basically what they're having you do is practice feeling good and feeling safe, especially in moments when your brain is feeling very triggered, but just in general to practice that every day, day in and day out to build a new neural network for feeling good and feeling safe, right? With the 
intent for that neural network to eventually become strong enough that it eclipses the old neural network for your stress programming. And for, what I found is that for some people, especially the people who don't have a lot of trauma, that can work, but it's slow and it takes more effort. Um, because remember, the brain learns everything through repetition and our learnings are all ba based on our past. So if you don't change anything in the past, it takes quite a bit longer because you are fighting yourself. So that's what happened for me when I tried that method is I would just sit down every day to do the practices and I would feel like I was meeting this 10 foot wall of resistance. Um, because for me, I had a lot of trauma and I um, hadn't been I hadn't found anything at that point that could actually heal that for me. So um, when I, so when I sat down and that was my experience over and over and over again for many months of trying, I decided to keep looking and I then eventually found neuroplasticity systems that allow you to go deeper, that allow you to use a process called memory reconsolidation to change memories and belief systems, basically the roots of these stress trees, um, so that the trees can, you know, be broken down more easily, um, and so that is the method that really worked for me. Rewiring my traumas basically freed up my brain to be able to build in that neural networking for feeling good and feeling safe. But it, it didn't work until I erased basically some of that old programming that suggested it wasn't safe for me to feel safe and it wasn't safe for me to feel good. Does it take a long time, Karen? Usually, how long uh, would that take? I would say... You mean like getting somebody all the way to regulation yeah. and health? Yeah, that's yes. a great question. Yeah. So um, getting someone all the way to regulation and health depends on their starting point, right? Um, their starting point in terms of how sick are they and how dysregulated are they and how long has that been going on, right? So the longer it's been going on or the more severe it is, the more time it usually takes. But I would say average timeline for someone to rewire all the stress programs that they want to to get well, somewhere between six and 18 months. And a particular issue, like oftentimes, you know, I do private sessions with people sometimes too, at this point, only members in the Wired for Wellness program. But in those sessions, people choose a topic, right? So somebody may choose a topic and say, hey, I am really struggling with perfectionism to the nth degree. Can you help me rewire that? So that's how those sessions are usually structured. And oftentimes we can rewire the roots of any stress program like that in average one to three sessions somewhere in that neighborhood. The thing that takes longer is like long-term ongoing trauma, especially in childhood. So if somebody, you know, was abused for years and years and years, that's going to take longer. I think that's obvious. But um, for your, you know, typical run-of-the-mill issues, that's the typical timeline um, in private session work. So I, yeah, I think people really enjoy how they are seeing progress the whole time, literally from day one. They're seeing progress in terms of changing their own stress patterns, but that that just becomes cumulative as they continue to do the work. Ah, uh, that's wonderful. Yes, you answered my question. Yes. So I guess we're almost at the end, but I would love to hear more about the program. I do have the link here. They'll be on the podcast profile notes. 
So get wired for wellness.com and then we'll have slash anxiety. That link will be here. But talk to me for a moment about that, how it works. Right. So that program is a free program that we put together to help people with anxiety, panic attacks, and phobias to rewire the roots of those conditions for themselves. So it was our goal to put the keys to the castle or the secrets Uh out there for people um, who really need it and are willing to DIY their way to healing. So that's... um, That one has several lessons in it um, about how to approach rewiring the roots of each of those um, types of issues. And then it also has several free processes that people can try out. Because a lot of people, when they hear about this, are like, but what is it like? What are you actually doing? And I'm like, it's much easier for you to just experience it than it is to explain it. So I would suggest people go and try that if they're curious and start the process as we recommend with something that makes you feel anxious. And then you will be able to track your progress with that as you um, go through the process. Um, And you will see that at the end, you are feeling less anxious about whatever that is, right? So that was your brain having already made some changes. Um, But for those changes to stick, then you have to do that with some repetition with that particular trigger. So we explain all of that in there, but that was our way of helping to start you know, getting people some relief and some deeper understanding of how this works. Yes. How wonderful, Karen. Thank you so much for being so clear, so generous, so genuine, and everything else in between. So loving. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a wonderful conversation. I hope it helps a lot of people. Oh my God, yes. I know a bunch of people around me that I would send this to. That's for sure, <laughs> including my own husband. <laughs> so the hope you see that the only question is just being open, right? We wish yes. that more people would be just open to try it. You know, just yes. try it and see. Exactly. So, but the, this is, that's why I host this conversation. It's very close to my heart that we try these healing methods. I do have I have the ending questions for you, but I, I have another. Yeah, there's a question here that I thought about now asking, but I will ask. <laughs> what would be the unnatural, let's say, justified experience of a panic attack or anxiety? What do you see in our modern society? In terms of like, what would be an instance where it would be appropriate to have e- a panic attack? Yes. Yes, okay. yeah. yeah. Com- completely natural in a sense. It's not really coming from trauma or any programming. It's just that would yeah, come up. Yeah, I think like the type of experiences that engender anxiety and panic attacks in everyone um, or most people are going to be situations that feel very intense and feel like they might actually be a threat to our lives. Um, And also, uh, so that might be military experiences, people who are in the police force and in a dangerous situation, um, people in an abusive, like physically abusive relationship, right? That would be normal to feel very anxious and have panic attacks in that situation. Or um, another one that I see very commonly is that when somebody experiences a big loss, It's very common for people to, as part of the grief process, panic. And so that would be a very normal situation for that to happen. And so I definitely don't want to send the message that 
panic attacks have no purpose and they were never appropriate because they exist for a reason. You know, we have the capacity to have them for a reason. But, um, you know, they just are showing up in most people's lives today in situations where they're not necessary or helpful. Mm, Yeah, so I love that. Yeah, that is, it's coming from the core understanding that the human experience, it's it's just so rich and it is to be experienced. It's not yeah. something to just kind of judge immediately that's not normal or not natural. So that's right. one of the things that really helps me a lot is just keeping this non-judgmental kind of mental space where, ah, it's okay. Huh? Yes. It's okay to feel this yes. and, and kind of let it pass, let it be. Uh, so thank you for saying that too. Um, so let's see. My last question will be this one, Karen. Oh, actually, before that, would you like to add anything else that you left unsaid? Um, no, I think, I think your questions have been great. I think we've covered a lot of ground. So let me ask you this one. I had two, but I will just ask you one. <laughs> what three experiences you wish everyone to have before they lose the body, before they die? Oh my gosh. That's, that is very interesting. Hmm. You know, I think one of them has to be from my very biased perspective (laughs) that people try this, that (laughs) people try to rewire something in their brain, right? Because you will never know how much change you are capable of Mm. until you try it. Mm. Most people until they try it are like, oh, no, I've been that way for 20 years. Mm. There's no way I can change that. (laughs) You know, and we've got somebody in the program right now who in our paid membership program who uh, has is 75 and has been anxious her entire life and now is not anxious. So it's never too late. Um, I guess I would say I want everyone on the planet to experience very, very deep love, not only for other people, but also for themselves. I would say that having that level of love for yourself (laughs) is almost a more profound experience than it is having it for someone else. And so I would love everyone to be able to experience that. Mm, And then, yeah, beyond that, I guess it's just, you know, if I had one more wish, it would be that everybody could experience what they are truly passionate about, you know, their feeling of their soul's purpose, having the freedom to be able to pursue that and experience it, I think is worth a lot Mm. in life. Yes. (laughs) And I love your wisdom. (laughs) I love your timeless wisdom. Um, Thank you so much again, Karen, for being you. Thank you. Thank you. It's truly beautiful. Ah, Before we say goodbye for today, where's the best place to find more information about you? I have two websites here, but I want to hear from you. (laughs) I think the best place is really to go to getwiredforwellness.com and Start with start with doing the free program. You know, with that, you will get, you know, links to find all of our other free resources and a lot more information um, if you want to take it further. But I think that's the best place for everybody to start to get to know us and neuroplasticity and experience it and see if it resonates, see if you like it. Mm, yes, I'll have the link on your podcast profile when it's published. Thank you so much again, Karen, for your presence in our shared reality. Thank you. Thank you. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Dr. Karen Curitan and her work, please visit getwiredforwellness.com backslash anxiety and getwiredforwellness.com. 
learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org/podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.